Right, well, welcome to this event. My name is Simon Blackburn. I'm chairing this event um, from the Forum for European Philosophy panel discussion. And we're talking about literature and the academic, literature as a resource for other disciplines. And there are three speakers tonight. The first is Richard Bronk, who's an author and visiting fellow at the LSE. Uh, he's the author of Progress and the Invisible Hand, the philosophy, uh, the philosophy and Economics of Human Advance, and more recently, The Romantic Economist, which uh, does sound a bit of a... Well, I'll leave you to say what it sounds like. Um, <laughs> um, um, <clears throat> uh, alongside him, there is uh, uh, Margot Finn, who is a historian, uh, professor of modern British history at the University of Warwick, and uh, she has written about the character of credit, personal debt in English culture. So again, we have an economic side, and she's currently working on families in colonial India. And um, the third speaker is uh, Neil Vickers, who's senior lecturer in uh, the Medicine and Literature Program at King's College London, uh, and he's still in a job. And uh, um, he has written about Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, and the medical culture of his time and his interests center on the interface between uh, medicine and literature, uh, medicine and narratives of illness, and in general the way uh, medicine has been conceptualized over the years in literature and in narrative. Um, so those are the three speakers. I think they have very different take on the, um, uh, on the, uh, uh, the relationship between um, uh, economic, economics on the one hand and medicine on the other, and literature, and we'll uh, hear the differing views as we go on. The way this is going to work is, um, after my five-minute introduction, which I see I've kept to, um, <clears throat> the speakers are going to speak for a maximum of 18 minutes each, and that is going to, that is going to give us time uh, for questions from the floor, which I shall moderate. Thank you very much. Richard. Thanks very much, Simon, and it's very nice to be here. Now, let me begin by saying how I first became interested in the lessons that I think we can draw from literature for the discipline of economics. I worked for 17 years in the city of London, and the longer I did so, the more aware I became of an important mismatch between the way economists usually model economies and the way markets often work in practice. In a nutshell, economists use equilibrium-based models and assumptions of rationally optimizing individuals, while the markets I saw around me were dynamic and creative processes driven by relentless innovation, self-reinforcing spasms of euphoria and despair, and the massive uncertainty that these imply. There were some regularities of behavior, of course, but as often as not, these seem to be a function of socially learned norms and ideological frames of reference. And it suddenly struck me that if economists wanted to make better sense of these phenomena, there was much they could learn from the romantic writers of around two centuries ago, who had analyzed social organisms and the role of imagination and emotion in unsurpassed depth. And the result, nearly a decade later, but fortuitously timed, was my book, The Romantic Economist, which Simon mentioned, where I argue that romanticism is indeed a surprisingly fruitful source of different assumptions, models, and metaphors for economics. What I, want, what I want to focus on this evening 
is just one facet of my arguments there, namely that romantic literature has much to teach us about the nature of the discipline of economics itself and the prerequisites of good economic analysis. So in the limited time available, I want to persuade you of two general points. The first is that romantic and postmodern philosophy and the techniques of literary criticism they inspire can help elucidate the nature of economic discourse. When you think about it, many of the questions central to literary criticism are relevant to understanding the discipline of economics. Does economics, any more than literature, imitate reality? And if so, does it imitate some ideal reality or the messy reality of everyday life? Alternatively, should we see economists' choice of dominant metaphor models and assumptions as partly creating the picture they paint? And is economics like art to be judged for its own sake, for the abstract beauty and grandeur of its mathematical equations, or for its applied relevance to a broader audience? The second general point I want to make is that a training in literature, or at least a close reading of romantic and other literature, is invaluable to the social scientist because it articulates the analytical necessity of imagination and helps train that great romantic organ of the mind, our imagination. Now perhaps the most important lesson of romanticism relates to the role played by imagination, metaphors and models in structuring our visions, beliefs and therefore social reality itself. The romantics were clear that you never have access to a definitive and objective way of looking at the world. Rather, the world as it appears to you is at least to some extent a creation of your mind. Your mind does not passively record and reflect facts out there, nor do your beliefs merely imitate reality. Rather, if you're going to make sense of the chaos about you, you must supply an intellectual framework, a metaphorical colouring, a principle of selection. As Wordsworth put it, you half create the world you see. Your mind is a creator and receiver both. Any particular observation you make is the joint product of sense data your mind receives and the conceptual structure your mind contributes to make sense of them. As Coleridge said when arguing with a young scientist who thought he could analyse facts without first having a theory, you must have a lantern in your hand to give light Otherwise, all the materials in the world are useless, for you cannot find them, and if you could, you could not arrange them. You cannot do without models and metaphors to help you understand the world any more than you can do without a lantern to see in the dark. But the trouble with lanterns, and with theories and metaphors for that matter, is that the light they cast, the focus they bring, is limited and partial. And this means that if you only use one light, one theoretical framework, you will keep stumbling on aspects of reality outside the area illuminated by your theory. To put it another way, the lens of metaphor or theoretical model can bias and distort your vision as well as focus it. It's exactly this, I think, that has been the recent fate of much of the economics, business and policy-making fraternity. Before the economic crisis erupted, most central bankers, treasury officials and financiers were so convinced that the Greenspan approach to monetary policy, the efficient market hypothesis and neoclassical economic models were sufficient, and had so internalised this one perspective 
that they were simply not predisposed to see the problems that were emerging because their theoretical and conceptual framework had no place for them. Similarly, bankers and regulators were so in the grip of Basel II-inspired monoculture of risk models and so prayed to the intellectual error of believing that you can turn even the uncertainty bred of innovation into measurable probabilities that most of them genuinely believed that what has since happened could only occur once in the lifetime of the galaxy. The romantic lesson to be drawn is that there is never only one right way of looking at a set of issues. Theoretical dogmatism makes you like a horse wearing blinkers, good at focusing straight ahead on one thing, but liable to miss what is coming at you from left field. For this reason, it's crucial to learn how to experiment with different metaphors, models, theoretical frameworks, different ways of seeing. Changing the metaphors we use helps us make sense of different aspects of reality and spot unexpected new developments. Now, this imaginative play with different metaphors and models that I'm advocating is essentially a practical and analytical version of the mission Wordsworth set himself in the preface to the Lyrical Ballads to choose incidents and situations from common life and to throw over them a certain colouring of imagination whereby ordinary things should be presented to the mind in an unusual way. Wordsworth explicitly links this modifying power of the imagination to the use of new metaphors, and economists can usefully follow his lead. So, for example, by experimenting with organic metaphors from Romanticism instead of the metaphors of social physics, economists will have a better chance of making sense of the dynamic, social, and creative aspects of markets. Similarly, by borrowing models normally applied to weather systems or flu epidemics, economists and financiers can isolate and simulate the threshold effects and self-reinforcing dynamics in markets that render them so unpredictable. Coleridge likened the spread of bankruptcies to a fever at once contagious and epidemic, and this simile, merely suggestive in his day, now finds serious echoes in the recommendations by the Bank of England's Andrew Haldane and others that we should learn from the field of epidemiology how to model the dynamics of default risk and market panic. Now, experimenting with new models is only one of the literary techniques that economists would do well to adopt. They also need to be aware of the extent to which both their own analysis and the social world they study is constituted by, part created by, the modelling language and metaphors they use. For example, however well a theory is tested, we should always treat the empirical results as provisional, simply because the paradigms and hypotheses we employ result in selective vision and cause us unwittingly to read structures and distinctions into reality that may not be there. As Wordsworth warned, in weakness we create distinctions, then believe that all our puny boundaries are things which we perceive, not which we have made. For this reason, I would also argue that economists could usefully learn from their colleagues in English departments how to deconstruct hidden metaphors in their discourse and analysis. In this way, they might become more aware of the unconscious structuring impact of the mechanical and equilibrium metaphors that currently litter economics and constrain the way they see the world. The point, of course, is not to reject the old mechanical metaphors and models entirely or deny their analytical power. Rather, it is to understand why they sometimes focus attention effectively and other times fail lamentably to disclose what is important. 
And my thesis is that the standard equilibrium models in economics with assumptions of rationally optimizing individuals are much less successful when economists are modeling innovative markets, social interdependence, and uncertainty. And this leads me to suggest the need for clearer boundaries of applicability of standard models. This will bolster their effectiveness. It will also allow them to be supplemented with new models and new metaphors better suited to studying outside these boundaries. Now it's to John Keats, I think, we should turn for insight into another analytical use of imagination. For Keats, the essence of imaginative genius was negative capability. That is, when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Now, good scientists, like good poets, should accept doubt and lay themselves open to empirical anomalies. They should remain imaginatively receptive to alternative perspectives and avoid encasing their analysis prematurely in the cognitive straitjacket of one paradigm. At some point, of course, economists, like other scientists, need to specialise in one particular modelling language. But the choice of which one to use should be driven by an open-minded assessment of the nature of the research problem, not by prior commitment to a particular theoretical framework. The same is true, incidentally, of policymakers. They, too, would do well to display more of Keats's negative capability, to be more open to new ideas and not rush to impose their favoured interpretation on the facts as they see them. Policymakers cannot operate without theories and models, without lanterns to see in the dark, but they can remain open-minded about which ones to use and alert to inconvenient pointers as they show up. For this reason, it's essential for the government machine to ensure that the economic policy advice it provides politicians is not structured solely in line with dominant theory or party ideology. Now let me finish now by recalling an insight into the value of literature for social scientists articulated by one of the founders of the London School of Economics, Beatrice Webb. In her autobiography, My Apprenticeship, Webb argues that real insight into human motivation and behaviour only comes to those possessing the faculties of sympathy and analytical imagination. And she acknowledges the important influence on her own thinking of poets and novelists. But why should we see the imaginative power of sympathy as a key analytical tool for the sociologist or economist? Should they not rely instead on dispassionate analysis of data and clear-headed axiomatic reasoning to gain insight? Well, to understand Webb's point, you need to remember a crucial distinction between the social and natural sciences. Social sciences, unlike natural sciences, interpret a pre-interpreted world. The behaviour studied by economists is already structured, in part at least, by the socially formed languages, norms and economic theories that individual actors have internalised. This means that you cannot fully explain socio-economic behaviour unless you've learned to empathise with, the better to interpret, the mindsets and conceptual structures that influence beliefs and reasons for action. Without analytical imagination, the conscious effort and unconscious ability to place yourselves in the conceptual shoes of those whose behaviour you study, you are always liable to miss key aspects of human intentionality. <coughs> For example, you cannot, I submit, fully understand the behaviour of Swedish people in relation to their welfare state and taxation policy 
without understanding the deeply entrenched cultural and social norms that structure their reaction to economic incentives. For this reason alone, it is helpful for social scientists, including economists, to be schooled in the disciplines of literature and modern languages, as well as mathematics. A purely scientific training may not equip us with the required sensitivity and imaginative openness to varied ways of life and thought. So to sum up, we need to be aware of what Deirdre McCloskey famously dubbed the rhetoric of economics. The extent to which economics is suffused with metaphorical colouring and its direction driven by the rhetorical power of mathematical beauty. We need to learn how to experiment imaginatively with new metaphors and models, display analytical negative capability and master the imaginative art of interpreting socio-economic systems structured by theories and norms that are alien to us. And finally, we should remember what Adam Smith knew, but modern economists have generally forgotten, that imagination plays a role in science and sentiment drives economic behaviour. And if you accept even half of these conclusions, you may agree that economists have much to learn from literature and the other arts of the imagination. It's going to take me at least 15 minutes to work out whether I can read this without reading glasses. So I would suggest those uh, 15 seconds at least, people could move toward the centre if you're in a row that has gaps so that latecomers could take seats on the aisle. I always say this to students and lecturers, it would be very social of you if you were to do that, creating gaps on the end. Brilliant. That's great. I think I can read this. Good. Academic historians have been reading, but also reading, novels to illustrate our arguments for decades. But we do so today, in the 21st century, we like to think much more reflectively, more methodically, and more analytically than past generations. In this paper, I wish to assess the dialogue between the social, legal, and cultural history of modern Britain on the one hand, and English fiction on the other. My overarching argument is as follows. The relationship between fiction and history in the Georgian and Victorian periods, but perhaps not subsequently, was fundamentally constitutive rather than merely reflective. In consequence, historians who ignore novels as key primary sources can no more provide comprehensive interpretations of Georgian and Victorian Britain uh, society and culture than can historians who decline to avail themselves of archival documents, newspapers, or parliamentary debates. Methodologically, moreover, academic historians cannot afford to ignore the insights of literary scholarship however annoyingly opaque that corpus may at times be in its modes of self-expression. Georgian and Victorian history without literature, in short, is inherently ahistorical. Let me begin biographically, as my arguments will draw heavily upon my own experience as an academic historian, and predominantly from a decade spent uh, researching and writing the character of credit, personal debt in English culture, 1740 to 1914, conveniently available for sale outside. <laughs> the initial idea for this book came to me as a postdoctoral teaching fellow at the University of Chicago and was inspired not by literature, 
but rather by an apparent conflict between historical experience and anthropological theory. Why, I wondered, did Britain, the first European nation to industrialize, retain imprisonment for debt much longer than other Western nations? The writings of anthropologists such as Marcel Mauss would suggest that imprisonment for debt, mistaking as it does persons for forms of payment, is a fundamentally pre-modern practice, appropriate only for so-called archaic societies. Surely both cultural and historical anthropology suggested Britain should have been at the vanguard of history in abolishing imprisonment for debt, rather than a laggard polity that retained this practice on its law books until the later 20th century. Novels came to my rescue in this context, not because I immediately developed a sophisticated research paradigm that melded historical, anthropological, and literary studies, but rather because I had to set imprisonment for death aside as a research project in order to find permanent employment and to convert my doctoral dissertation into a monograph. Debtors' prisons by this point have become much more interesting to me than my doctoral thesis. This is a phenomenon many of you will experience. Uh, but I'm a pragmatist at heart, and I laid down a self-denying ordinance against doing any proper research on the new book until the old one was completed. Fiction was exempt from my self-denying ordinance. In spare moments, in waiting rooms, on trains and in planes, I read 18th and 19th century novels for their debtors' prisons, tirelessly locating fictional depictions which would, I assumed, later provide colourful vignettes, telling anecdotes, which would punctuate an archivally-based social history of imprisonment for debt. This, I would argue, is how historians have conventionally treated literary fiction, as a potentially rich repository of anecdotal bric-a-brac, available for titivating the serious and somber chambers of historical analysis inhabited by our discipline. I started, of course, with Dickens his life story and literary production were notoriously forged in the cauldron of London's Marshalsea Prison, where his father, taking his family with him, was imprisoned in the 1820s. Curious as to Dickens' originality and exceptionality in this regard, I read backwards, chronologically, in the literary canon, seeking a provenance of novelists' formative social experience within the walls of debtors' prisons. Immediately striking was how difficult it was to find a novelist in the English literary canon for whom imprisonment for debt was not at once an immensely debilitating personal socioeconomic experience and an intensely fruitful imaginative space for fictional exploitation. Henry Fielding, whose father died in the Fleet Prison, was himself imprisoned for death in 1741 and died insolvent. Debts and debtors' prisons unsurprisingly animate his fiction, propelling plot lines and providing dramatic settings for the protagonists of both Fielding's novel Amelia and his Joseph Andrews. Fielding was hardly an anomaly. Tobias Smollett suffered imprisonment for debt in the King's Bench, a fate shared in 1753 by his fictional protagonist, Ferdinand Count Falvin. Oliver Goldsmith, deeply in debt to his landlady in the 1760s, was spared the debtor's prison only by the intervention of Samuel Johnson, himself twice imprisoned for debt, who peddled the manuscript of Goldsmith's Vicar of Wakefield, replete with scenes depicting Dr. Primrose's imprisonment for debt to a London bookseller. Nor was the umbilical link between novelists' indebted lives and their debt-ridden fiction confined to the highbrow literary canon. John Clellan thus penned his scandalous memoirs of a woman of pleasure, in 1748, while confined for debt in the fleet. 
Exploring the persistent nexus between novelists' experiences of imprisonment for debt and their literary representations of indebtedness brings to light a wealth of information about modes of literary production in Georgian and Victorian England. This relationship is not one of simple reflection. Fictions of debt were integral to the making of the British novel and to the making of British history. Novels were not merely literary mechanisms for holding a mirror up to British society. Attending two fictions of debt thus illuminates the ways in which the 18th century commodification of literature created a market for novels that exposed novelists to the discipline of the debtor's prison. Trends in fictional form worked alongside these commercial developments to deepen the novel's link to the debtor's prison. From the later 18th century, the rising influence of humanitarian and Gothic narratives, for example, lent themes of economic vulnerability and increasing resonance with works of fiction. Victorian sentimentalism and the gendered conception of separate male and female spheres also fostered the perpetuation of this trope of imprisoned debtors into the 19th century. Not only Dickens and Pickwick Papers, David Copperfield and Little Dorrit sustained this tradition, but also, for example, William Thackeray and Pendennis and Anthony Trollope in novels that included Framley Parsonage, The Three Clerks and Phineas Finn. And then in the 1860s, it suddenly stopped. What stopped was not imprisonment for debt in England. This practice peaked in 1906, a year which saw 12,000 debtors imprisoned in England. And the practice continued to a lesser rate until 1970. What stopped in the 1860s was the fictional depiction of imprisonment for debt, a literary convention as old as the novel itself. From Defoe and Smollett to Dickens and Trollope, novelists had been fashioned by and were fashioners of fictions of imprisonment for debt, using this legal institution as a springboard for analysis of topics that included Christian ethics, market morality, the social obligations of the property classes, and the inherently dangerous connection between debt, credit, and female sexuality. Later writers such as George Gissing, John Galsworthy, Oscar Wilde, and H.G. Wells returned to these very themes, but they did so without stepping, literally or imaginatively, into the precincts of the debtor's prison. Silences are troubling to historians. Our two instincts in response to encountering silences is first to fill these gaps, and second, if we can't fill them, to abandon them. Here, I think, literary analysis provides a salutary perspective, for the notion that silences can and must be read or interpreted is central to literary scholarship. Failing to find novels depicting imprisonment for debt after 1860, and God knows I plowed my way through a tranche of second-rate <coughs> literature to try and find them, I was forced instead to find ways of reading the persistent literary silence of later Victorian and Edwardian writers in the face of the conspicuous perpetuation of imprisonment for debt as a legal practice. Here, a lively and thought-provoking strand of literary analysis elaborated by legal scholars proved essential. From the 1980s, studies such as Richard Posner's Law and Literature and James Boyd White's Heracles Bow have argued convincingly that the law is at one and the same time an institutional and a discursive system, that law is constructed not only as rules and policies, but as stories, explanations, performances, linguistic exchanges, as narratives and rhetoric. What was it institutionally and discursively, I thus asked, that changed in the 1860s so as to silence English novelists sustained historical and imaginative engagement with the debtor's prison? 
The answer to this question, I think, lies in the rise of the county court system and the demands that we recognize both the institutional biases and the discursive limitations of small claims litigation in England. The 1860s saw decades of antagonism to imprisonment for debt in England, which had been stoked in no small part by gothic, <coughs> romantic, and sentimental fictional depictions of incarcerated debtors, culminate in the abolition of imprisonment for insolvency by the superior common law courts. Individuals owing personal debts could now, for a payment of £10, avail themselves of the bankruptcy statutes, previously accessible only to merchants and tradesmen, and they could thereby escape imprisonment of their persons for their debts. In contrast to the superior courts, however, the county courts retained their right to imprison defendants tried for small debts. Their defendants were overwhelmingly working-class men, incapable of paying the £10 fee required to file for bankruptcy. Hitherto, a legal practice that had swept the poor, the middling sort, and the property classes into prisons across England and Wales, imprisonment for debt now became emphatically plebeian. Previously, a common social experience across society, and one to which the vagaries of the new literary marketplace made novelists especially prone, imprisonment for debt was displaced from the centre of fictional production by its institutional relocation to the county court system. <coughs> Unlike the jails to which the superior courts had committed their debtors, in which wives and children lived with fathers and each day saw the constant influx and egress of visitors from the outside world, the county courts incarcerated their plebeian prisoners in closed, regimented, disciplinary institutions lacking in literary allure. County court litigation's discursive form, moreover, reduced its ability to provide an imaginative substrate for fictional imaginings of imprisoned debtors. Court scenes are a commonplace of Georgian and Victorian fiction, but this well-established tradition of representation relied fundamentally upon the superior court system's function as a mechanism for concocting, testing, and recording extended legal narratives. Barristers representing clients in these superior courts of law were paid to articulate elaborate stories about litigants, their motives, personalities, and deeds. Judges rehearsed and refashioned these stories in instructing juries to acquit or convict. Newspapers made profits by recounting these intricate proceedings at length in their columns, and legal treatises enshrined them for posterity in case law. All these narrative processes lent themselves to fictional representation and reinterpretation, for they were themselves inherently forms of fiction shaped by literary tropes and genres. The operation of small claims courts tended instead to distance petty debtors from these literary traditions. To be sure, county court judges were well read. They were steeped in the English literary canons, entrenched fictional conventions. The diary, for example, of H.T. Atkinson, who presided over the Leeds County Court in the 1870s, records not only the judge's veneration for Dickens' fiction, but also his own imaginative identification with Oliver Goldsmith's most iconic imprisoned debtor, the Vicar of Wakefield, Dr. Primrose. And there's one wonderful entry in which this county court judge, before he goes off to, to court to try cases, uh, laments that he's just like Oliver Goldsmith and can't pay his own debts, and then goes on to the court to, to um, imprison debtors from there. But the litigation of small debts in the county courts typically took place without the presence of solicitors or barristers, in the absence of juries, and indeed often without the defendant's presence uh, at the trial itself. Tried in bulk, county court debtors were only exceptionally of literary interest to the newspaper press, 
much less to writers of fiction, who now only exceptionally share the imprisoned debtor's fate. Once wielded as a powerful weapon in reformers' campaign to abolish imprisonment for debt, indeed, novels now emerged as a rationale for maintaining the county court's powers to incarcerate petty debtors. The the flagrant abuse uh, with which Little Dorrit was written to illustrate has been entirely blotted out from the statute book, one tradesman's newspaper thus trumpeted in 1880. The abuses of the debtor and creditor system that belong to the old law furnish some of our brilliant novelists with more than one pathetic situation, rousing public opinion so much that these abuses have been swept away, another newspaper noted a few years later. Together, then, the discursive and the institutional operation of the novel and the county court system work to remove imprisonment for debt from from the later Victorian and Edwardian fictional conscience, even as they ensured the continued flow of plebeian debtors into historical prisons. Fiction, I've argued here, is an essential primary source for historians of Georgian and Victorian England, whether by their silence or by their cacophonous attention to imprisoned debtors. Novels of this period spoke eloquently to change over time, and they were themselves recognized as formative agents in effecting historical transformations. Historians of these years thus ignore fiction and literary analysis at our peril. Georgian and Victorian novels are the very stuff of history, not mere ornaments to historical mansions. That said, and in the spirit of provoking discussion, I would venture in conclusion that the historicity of the English novel and perhaps the literariness of English history was far more pronounced and more significant in the 18th and 19th century than it is today. Fiction and history are still closely connected, but thanks to the rise of mass media, film, television, virtual reality, online communities, and the like, they are no longer joined organically at the hip. Once yoked in the same harness, these separated Siamese twins now stand tottering forward, haltingly, into a much more varied and confusing 21st century imaginative universe. Thank you very much. First of all, may I say um, what an honor it is to be here and to thank um, Richard and the LSE and the Forum of European Philosophy for inviting me to speak at this event, and also to say how burdensome it is to follow two such eloquent speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a divided soul on the appropriation <laughs> of um, literature by medicine. I have a foot in both camps. I spent 10 years as an epidemiologist, and now I teach English literature. And for my sins, I also run a course on literature and medicine. And it seems to me that, in general, literature has taken far more from medicine than medicine has taken from literature. Um, Like Margot, I'm very interested in 18th and 19th century literature. I've written a book about ways in which physiological ideas influenced aesthetic ideas. They were clearly thought of as flourishing in the same hedgerow in the Romantic period. But I'm also very interested in the present. 
Now, when I think as a literary scholar about what literature has got from medicine, well, there's the comedy of humours, Ben Jonson, all those Renaissance people. The Simpsons, by the way, is a comedy of humours. There's no learning. People are their constitution. They are the peculiar blend of humours. There's sensibility, probably the most successful medical idea ever to flourish in literature. The idea that our nature is determined by our neurological makeup. And some people are very virtuous or very ingenious and prone to get nervous disease. And so much 18th century literature is predicated on that idea. You might think of, for instance, Sense and Sensibility, long 18th century. And we could go into the 19th century and look at phrenology. I mean, I think actually the realist novel is taking its notions of character from contemporary medical ideology. But then look at the traffic the other way. When has medicine gone to literature to clarify its thinking? Not very often is the answer. There are some striking cases. For instance, when Maudsley and some of the early child psychiatrists in this country began writing about the possibility of child psychosis, it's absolutely extraordinary, extraordinary how often they cite Jane Eyre. Why? Because although they were treating children, they were treating so few that it would have been very easy to identify the children in question. So instead what they did was, of course, the 19th century is the century of the child in literature, the radical innocence of childhood, as Yeats calls it. It's what Dickens is all about. Um, they quarry literature, for examples, of the psychotic child. It starts early. They tell lies. Jane Eyre. And Jane Eyre is quoted again and again in the early journals of the 1850s. So that's one example. The other example is, of course, Freud and the case history. Freud's case histories are almost novels. I mean, they're novel length for, some, for one thing. Um, there are 150 pages. They're written with great ingenuity. And they're not bound by uh, criteria of absolute consistency, he says. There's this explanation. In parallel, there's that other explanation. But generally, when you find medicine going to literature, as, of course, Freud does all the time, it's in psychiatry. And that's because psychiatry doesn't have a medical model. Very consistently. So literature has as strong a voice as anything else. Um, now, in the 1980s and 90s, a remarkable movement took root in the States which tried to appropriate literary theory and the theory of literary criticism for the medical consultation. There was a book by Catherine Montgomery Hunter called Doctor's Stories, 
which attempted to say that all medical knowledge was narrative knowledge. You meet a patient, you don't know what's wrong with them. You can consult a book, but actually there is a moment of epistemological nakedness when you've got to decide, has this person got condition A or condition B? It's a nice idea, but actually in the era of high-tech medicine, it's quite false. Medical knowledge is histological knowledge. It's knowledge derived from large numbers. And the fact that we come to it in narrative form is, in my opinion, neither here nor there. Actually, there is a hierarchy of how we know medical things, and at the top is the randomized control trial. And so I never want to lose sight of the fact that if I have cancer, I want my surgeon to know how to reset my tumour. And I don't care if she's never heard of Proust. <laughs> and that's, that, that just won't go away. You know? Now, at the same time, there are movements teaching literature in medical schools, it's happening all over the United States. And I think for a certain subclass of medical student, this is really great because literature awakens in them a sense of the, the moral complexity of being a doctor. Just the moral complexity of being a doctor that you will get from, for instance, Middlemarch. This is well worth knowing about. But again, I'm not sure it's a contribution to medicine. It's, a contri it's only an indirect one insofar as it's a contribution to helping you bear your life as a doctor. Very important contribution. But I'm not, it's a doctoring contribution rather than a medical contribution, I think. Now, more important than all of this right now, it seems to me, is the proliferation of memoirs and fictional works delving into illness, quite often major illness. This is relatively new. I think it's happening 20 years. William Steyer and Darkness Visible, I mean, often used to date it. Um, there are exceptions, but we're now in the era when you can make a movie like The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, or Iris, um, where you can describe how you manage your colostomy. You know, confessional boundaries have massively lowered. And it seems to me that the things that memoir writers are writing now about sickness are far more valuable than what was being written, say, 20 years ago, which was much closer to the model of the self-help book. The self-help book, of course, hasn't gone away. And there are healthcare systems. If you, uh, is anyone aware of DIPEX? Many people here will be aware of DIPEX, the database of patient experience. 
you can go on to dipex.org and it will you can enter into the search engine any condition any condition at all and a series of MPEGs will come back to you you can talk patients will be talking to you about the condition that you have condition X and the point about condition X is that it's telling you what to expect as a patient in the NHS. It's not telling you about you. It's narrative from the point of view of the healthcare provider. The memoirs, on the other hand, um, I don't have time to talk about any of them at length, are talking about what illness means in the context of a whole life. And this, it seems to me, is something that all doctors should be exposed to. A very good example, and I'll um, conclude um, by just describing it. It's a book that I think some people here are bound to have read. Hilary Mantel, Giving Up the Ghost. And this is a book which has illness on every page. Hilary Mantel was a sickly child. And um, it's magnificently written, absolutely magnificently written. She uh, also had an extremely confusing childhood where her mother took a lover, moved him into the house with her father. She was never allowed to discuss this. She has this notion that she's going to turn into a boy when she's four. Somehow that never quite comes off. <laughs> and her childhood is characterized by very heavy, burdensome secrets. She then goes on to describe the endometriosis that has cast a terrible shadow over her adult life. Undiagnosed endometriosis becomes, in this narrative, the heir to countless childhood bafflements. And because it's a, a very subtle, insidious condition, it takes about 14 years to have it diagnosed. In the meantime, um, she is uh, sectioned <laughs> put in a psychiatric hospital um, as hysterical, um, has extraordinary uh, akathisic reactions, that's to say psychotic reactions to some of the drugs she's put on, um, until eventually the whole thing is, is described. By which time, of course, her, life, her life's pattern is finally settled. But it seems to me that the great achievement of this book, one of many great achievements of this book, is that it doesn't give you illness merely in the eye of the storm. It gives you illness in the context of a whole life and what it meant in the context of a whole life. And I suppose in conclusion, it seems to me that the more works of that kind that trainee doctors read the more humane our medicine will be. And that's a very worthy aim. Thank you.
Well, I think the, uh, the burden of punctuality has so terrified our speakers that, um, that, that, that we now have some 40 minutes for questions. And uh, I think I'll start the, the ball rolling, if I may. Um, okay, there are three different perspectives here. From Richard's perspective, the use of literature, the use of imagination that literature expands is of direct benefit to economists. Um, they need it um, because otherwise they get locked into pet theories and idiotic views of human behavior and so on. Um, it's a very serious point. I, I went to a very good um, talk by um, an anthropologist who now works on terrorist groups, terrorism. And he was very interesting on the incentives that get thrown around, particularly by Western um, military or Western politics, um, so, for example, you might say to Iran, if you don't behave in such and such a way, we'll um, you know, invoke economic sanctions. Or if you do behave in such a nice way, we'll give you e economic aid. And this, um, uh, this, of course, is good orthodox economics. X plus 10 quid is better than X. Except, of course, if you think, there are many, many situations in which X plus 10 quid is not better than X. Um, suppose, for example, I look after my neighbor's dog while they're away for the weekend, um, I would expect, and the neighbor might come back and thank me. Let's call that X. Oh, that's nice. He might bring me a bottle of wine. That's X plus a little bit. Suppose he gave me X plus 10 quid. He said, thank you, here's 10 quid. That's much worse. Um, that's destroyed the sense of reciprocal friendship, trust, um, working together, dignity, something in the, in the nature of friendship, which um, ideally is the relationship with the neighbor. might be in the, in the relationship I supposed I had. You know, I might have been quite flattered that he asked me to look after his dog. Uh, but then as soon as the cash nexus comes in, that's gone. So it's lost. And similarly, if, um, it's, if it's a matter of, uh, say, religious principle that you behave in such and such a way, uh, the offer of 10 quid not to behave that way, or the offer of million quid or hundred million quid not to behave that way uh, can seem just insulting. It's undermining your dignity and your genuine um, commitment. So I think in that kind of way, a little narrative, I mean I'm no novelist and I just made up the scenario with the neighbour and the dog, but uh, uh, an imaginative narrative can alter your perception of the, the theory. Richard said something very interesting though that this was because economists interpret an interpreted world that is they're dealing with human behavior and human behavior already takes place under a system of thought. I've talked about friendship or dignity or self-worth or self-esteem the sort of things that might go on in a relationship with a neighbor. Um, and I think that's a, a very important difference presumably with medicine. Medicine, at least very often, you know, a tumor is a, a, as much an object of scientific explanation as an internal combustion engine um, that it's not, all, it's not an already interpreted thing it's just a problem for somebody and so it's a scientific object on the other hand it seems to me that medicine, and this is where I'd like to try and uh, suggest a rapprochement between Richard and, uh, and Neil um, 
but not sure, I'm not sure where Margot stands on this. Um, it seems to me there's scope for rapprochement because presumably doctors do themselves in their doctoring theorizing use models and analogies and metaphors um, and I suppose the history of medicine is pretty replete with some, some of which strike us as pretty, pretty grim these days like the, the, the idea of humors, the four humors um, or uses categories of course like say female hysteria um, which um, may themselves uh, be due for deconstruction for a reading that, um, uh, that opens doctors' minds. So it seems to me that there's, there's, there's room for give and take. It's not all just like the internal combustion engine in medicine. Mm -hmm. um, there's people at the, at the other end of it. Anyhow, I offer that as a, uh, as a reconciliation. But perhaps it would be more fun if we just left these two to go hammer and tongs at each other <laughs> with Paul Margot in the middle. Anyhow, that's enough from me. You've now got 35 minutes for questions, and I'll moderate. I'll try and keep questions reasonably um, tight. Don't use this as an opportunity for grandstanding like I just did. Um, <laughs> okay, yes. Thank you. I suppose grandstanding is your prerogative standing up there, isn't it? Yes, it is rather. <laughs> um, I thought um, I was really fascinated by all of them. Um, I just wanted to ask um, Neil something. I was wondering if you could think of situations where medicine has benefited from literature. I think, it, I, 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 I mean, I, I, as I've said, I, think, I really think in, in, in the sphere of psychiatry, um, where thick description is required, and where no medical model commands absolute consensus, literature has always been very, very useful. Um, I would also say that, I mean, in, in response to what Simon was saying, I think it's a cognate point, there are ways in which, of course, doctors misdiagnose out of, say, excessive identification with the patient. You look really healthy. In fact, I think you're exactly like me. And perhaps underestimate difficulties, or, or consequently, or conversely, uh, you would do the very, very opposite. I think those sorts of dynamics are absolutely um, getting in the way all the time. The human factor is getting in the way all the time, and, and it would be naive to imagine that it could ever be dissolved, but right. it can't. Right. It absolutely can't. And, 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 and this, of course, can be um, rendered, and is rendered all the time. The reason why I said that was because you seem to be talking a lot about the content of literature, and I was thinking about more of the kind of processes of, of literature. For example, um, my friend um, works over in the States, and I understand that um, doctors over there, they have a lot of multiple choice questions, that's what I understand. And so she has a PhD in literature, um, and she's actually shown them how to actually write more descriptively. So it's not actually only about the content, it's about the style that we use in literature as well, the kind of discourse that we use, and bedside manner, gosh, let's not go into to that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is a, a question for all of you, really, but specifically directed at Richard. Um, at the moment, it seems that uh, literature and the humanities generally is under a sort of terrifying threat from particularly myopic uh, economic thinking, we should we say, with the you know, research impact framework. I know that you've written about this, Simon. Um, 
and uh, I just wondered what, uh, whether it could, literature could be its own sort of protector in this way and uh, try and help people to think about uh, other ways uh, it's useful to us beyond some particularly uh, short-sighted economic impact. Well, I mean, it won't surprise you to know that um, I entirely agree with that, that literature has all sorts of values. Um, I, I was speaking up at the Words with Trust Arts and Books Festival a couple of weeks ago, and you know, this is something they're extremely, they were, of course, very delighted at the idea that Wordsworth might be useful even to economists. And, um, but I mean, I think it is, it, is a, it is a very serious point. I mean, to pick up Simon's point, I think, about... I think science, natural science, which medicine is somewhat closer to mm -hmm. than the social science, uh, is different from the social science because it's because it is um, for two reasons. First of all, because the social world, as I said earlier, is pre-interpreted, and therefore it's very important that the way economic agents behave is partly structured by the economic theories that um, that business people and so on have have, uh, have uh, internalised. Um, and the economic policy in, in, in uh, government is largely driven now by, by, by theory. But it's also, I think, for a different reason, which is that economists are often, not always, by any means, and I have to say that very clearly here, um, are slightly old-fashioned scientists. I mean, my brother, for example, is a nuclear physicist. And for physicists, the idea that imagination, as, as Adam Smith would put it, helps to connect together the discordant phenomena of nature is something that they, is completely natural to them. The idea that there are incommensurable perspectives on physics, that there is there's, uh, quantum mechanics, there's, there's chaos theory, there's Newtonian physics, none of these are, all of these are very important, all of them tell you something that's important about the multifaceted world, and you cannot reduce them to a single unified theory. I think it, many scientists, other than economists, are rather more up to speed, if you like, with how tricky the interface between theory and, and fact um, is. Having said that, I think um, a lot of what I'm arguing in the book actually is, um, is preaching to, to, a, to a set of um, themes that are being very well articulated by many of the cutting edge economists. So I'll give you one example that picks up on the, the example that um, Simon gave of taking care of, of, of his neighbor's dog. Um, George Akerlof, um, the Nobel Prize winning economist, um, partly made his reputation um, by um, something called the efficiency wage hypothesis, um, which takes gift exchange as a simple idea that we're, if managers are loyal to their employees, employees will be loyal back to managers, and that that will solve all sorts of coordination problems. It'll be a lot cheaper than spying on emails and all the other things you have to do now in modern, modern firms. And he uses this to explain a rather important economic um, issue, which is why is it that wages don't tend to fall to the market clearing rate during a recession? He says, well, it's fairly obvious, actually. Good companies don't want to breach that bond of loyalty with their best, with their good employees by cutting wages. And they want to re reciprocate to their, to their loyal employees, so wages remain higher in a recession than they would need to be to clear the market and allow the unemployed to get back in. So there are a lot of cutting-edge economists who are using ideas well outside the more mechanical, rational, optimizing micro-foundations. And essentially what I'm trying to do is to say there's a unifying link by, by, between many of these new theories, behavioral and others, in economics, which is that they partly have their um, foundations philosophically in this romantic critique of very narrow rationalism of Benthamite utilitarianism and so on. Thank you.
Well, I suppose in, in response to the original question, in a way, the funding mechanism in the higher educational system forces us to reify into units that map onto disciplines. And part of, I think, what's come out of all three papers is that actually literature inhabits these, these various, you know, we'd now call them interdisciplinary you know, fields. But the whole point is that literature is forged in a period where there aren't disciplines in, in, in that sense. So I think that we've lost in the 21st century the ability to recognize literature almost everywhere. Now, where I would apply that perhaps to, to what you were saying is you're trying in a way to define medicine as clinical diagnostic medicine. Biomedicine. Yeah. I'm defining it as biomedicine. And biomedicine inhabits a portion of what I would recognize medicine as being. Mm -hmm. And many of those other portions of medicine are more narrative in their mm -hmm. nature and thus lend themselves rather more to literature. Yes. Mm -hmm. Average length of a consultation yeah. is yeah. seven minutes. Yeah. In yeah. The consultation of the GP, that was in 2005. I don't, I don't have more up-to-date figures. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I hear people like Oliver Sacks and Co. calling for these longer, you know, for longer consultations, more of the patient point of view, etc. And I think this would be very, very good uh, if it could be had. But uh, I'm not sure it will be. And I also think that rather than talking, maybe you need to go in an MRI machine, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> have a CAT scan. Or your tumour could grow that much longer in the course of the long consultation. <laughs> <laughs> on, the other, on, the, on the other hand, I know about the time uh, my wife had, uh, I think it was the first of our children, um, and medicine was in a very scientific sort of phase, and um, the, the rumour was that one lady in the, uh, in the maternity ward just put hello in lipstick on the front of her belly because <laughs> the only way she could get the doctor to regard her as a person rather than a, a collection of symptoms, which I think can't have been very good for treatment. <laughs> um, yes? Uh, I'll try not to grandstand, but might meander a little bit. I'll, I'll pick up on Atlop and uh, also on medicine and ask her, sorry. I'm trying to ask a question about training, about interdisciplinarity, which you all exemplify in the university. Um, picking up on Ackloff first, there was an excellent review in the London Review of Books about a month ago by John Gray of Ackloff and Schiller's recent book, Animal Spirits, in which he said fundamentally three things. It's a good book. It doesn't take Cain seriously enough on uncertainty, either epistemologically or ontologically. And, and lastly, that there is one area of life where the axioms of modern economics seem to apply, which is... Uh, the incentive structures facing academic economists. <laughs> um, now, like you, I don't want to sort of push it too far. I think many good things are happening in modern economics and political science, but this sort of creation of a monoculture I don't think was so evident in the 1970s. And, uh, going to, to Neil, when I was an undergrad in the 70s, uh, I was once supervised with a medic who in his third year at Cambridge was able to take any course that he liked. Mm -hmm. It's quite astonishing. I, I don't know whether that's the case now, and I, I wondered mm -hmm. if the three yeah. of you might like to reflect upon the responsibilities of the modern university, given the pressures that we're all facing, to, to try and encourage the sorts of attitudes that you all seem to, to want to endorse? I mean, one of the things that's, that's noticeable, of course, is that this is, in some sense, less of a problem, I think, in the US, because of the liberal arts um, degree tending to be the first degree in the US. 
Um, and it's also less of a problem in continental Europe because um, they don't specialise in three subjects from the age of 15 or 16. So I think this, this perhaps is, to some extent, a particularly, peculiarly, and I better be careful here and say English problem here because my Scottish wife is in the audience who will point out that they also do more, more subjects until, until 18. So I think there, there is an issue there. Um, and I mean, what we've been fencing around is, is a very old debate ever since um, C.P. Snow wrote The Two Cultures, I think. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised we've known Neil for a while to see which, which of us is being C.P. Snow tonight and which is pretending <laughs> to be F.R. Levis. But of course the point is um, that both sides were right. I mean, that Snow was right that the two cultures are separated by a gulf of mutual incomprehension often. Um, but just as Snow was right that literature needs to learn from science, it's also, I believe, right that, um, that scientists need to learn, as Levis argued, from, from and, and Beatrice Webb and so on, from um, things. And I think it is true, I would maintain to some extent, even true of the natural sciences, but particularly true of the social sciences, where after all you are in the end dealing with the emotional reactions, the cultural norms and so on. To pick up on Akolov's book on, um, with Schiller on animal spirits, which again I, I agree was, 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 was largely a very good book, but it, one thing struck me as weird, even with such a fine mind behavioral economist as Akhlov, he treats narratives, stories, which is as animal spirits. Because if you're a good economist and you accept, because you're, you like Keynes, that there's got to be something other than rationality, pure rational optimization. We accept, okay, Keynes was right about animal spirits. So everything else goes under this catch-all phrase in Akhlov and Schiller of animal spirits. Even narrative stories, morality, norms are all animal spirits. Now this is strange, I think, and suggests even a narrowness in, 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 in Akhlov. Can I say that I agreed with everything that Richard said <laughs> in connection with um, the social sciences? Absolutely everything. So I don't. I, I actually don't think that there is a no. um, a great divergence here um, on the question of uh, training of doctors. Um, I think there are now more opportunities for um, medics to take intercalated uh, degrees. Although there's quite a bit of pressure on them to uh, intercalate science degrees, but you do get um, people taking. Uh, non-science degrees, and that, that, that I think is, is, is going to increase, and it's a very, very good thing. It will also change, of course, as more and more medical courses are postgraduate medical courses, and more and more of our doctors will be trained in the American way after having done a liberal arts degree, or, you know, of which you know, ever, ever larger numbers are, uh, are doing. Um, and I'd also like to come back to the young man at the back, uh, since I didn't answer, but actually I think I'm F.R. Levis on this question, <laughs> if I may <laughs> be truly schizoid. And that, and that is to say that, in fact, the AHRC from about 2004, that's the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the government funding body, decided to justify the humanities very largely on their utility to yeah. other, and that was disgraceful. And it has weakened the humanities immeasurably. Um, and things like literature ought to be valued for their own sake. The value of a literary work lies in the experience it gives, uh, and not merely in its instrumentality to other disciplines. Though, of course, I wouldn't deny that such instrumentality exists. But I think of late there's been 
partly because of the, the, all this fad for interdisciplinarity mm. that, that there just hasn't been enough um, valuing of the thing for itself. I mean, uh, for what it's worth, the Arts and Humanities Research Council receives about 100 billion a year, which is quite a lot of money. Um, the total uh, research council's budget, the seven research councils, is two and a half billion. So Arts and Humanities gets about 4% of the amount that the government gives to research in the UK, if you exclude research on weapons. If you, if you bring in research on weapons, it's another two and a half billion spent by the Ministry of Defence. And so, in fact, Arts and Humanities, which would include such things as trying to understand what motivates Persians, what their history is, what the, uh, what the religious um, traditions are, what the philosophical traditions underlying Islam are, all that, uh, that gets 2% of the nation's research budget. So that's the impact that the government has already judged arts and humanities to have. Yes. Much. I'm delighted we've got um, FR Levis in the room, and that really was my question. Um, what I found as a literature scholar very encouraging was all three of you spoke about literature as having value, and um, we know after years of theory that for a while that was a complete no-no. And I wondered if you do feel there's been a sea change, not discarding theory, from which, but it was particularly, Margot, what you were saying about how historians used to use literature, and certainly in literature the new historicist approach tended to also yeah. sort of put in a thumb and pull out a plum and just go from there. And I wondered, are we, are we actually saying that literature has value and how wonderful that is? <laughs> I think some of the most uh, imaginative um, history that's been written in the past decade have done one of two things, and perhaps some of them may have done both. Um, one is the way in which literature has come to make us think much more imaginatively about how people fashion selves, and particularly work on the 18th and the 19th century, rather than taking as axiomatic in a sort of Adam Smithian way that there is a person with a self-interest defined out there, and that everything else flows from that. Um, historians are now thinking more about the fact, how, how did people come to perceive of themselves as self? Did that change over time? So historicization of the self has come very much from sensitive readings of literature, I think, and that's been absolutely crucial. Now, growing up sometimes parallel to that rather than intersecting with it has been an attempt, I think a much less successful attempt, to read visual sources much more intelligently. But it's still the case that we as historians do this, you know, and I, I think you're right, you know, the thumb and the plumb is exactly the, the methodology we've tended to use with images. And you'll read a lavishly illustrated Yale University press book where they've spent a lot of money on getting images to fit. Absolutely no discussion in the text of this image. They're just kind of thrown in there. Well, I think we've moved increasingly away from using literary sources that way, but we need to go there with visual sources. And then to talk about the intermarriage among historical sources, visual sources, and literary sources. Uh, right in the middle of the back, yes? or literature mm -hmm. and I've been thinking a bit um, the genome essentially is like one story a collection of, of four letters mm -hmm. and 
something, sorry, else, something else I did before coming to LSU was working with drug addicts as well, who have essentially began to think that their lives are reduced to collections of genetic predispositions or a product of neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And my question to you was originally going to be, um, is medical science a threat to literature? But then hearing, um, I think one of the questions talked about the utility of literature. And someone else mentioned biomedical science and appreciation. So I guess my question to you is not so much, is there a space for literature? Is there a space for medicine? Are they separate? But really, does, does the thinking around genetics and neuroscience maybe diminish our ability to appreciate the arts? And is that really what, um, what the threat is? Is it, as we think we understand what it means to react to the arts, is that more of a worry, some, uh, a worry than uh, something? I must say, I don't think so. I think our ability to appreciate literature really stems from our humanness. And I can imagine all sorts of ways in which the Genome Project may change sickness in the 21st century quite a bit. One can imagine all kinds of specialist treatments. And so, but, you know, the reality of day-to-day -day living has changed a lot over the past centuries anyway, so it will be simply more of the same in a sense. Um, I, can't, I, I don't see why it should, why it should restrict our experience of the of art. Yes, the question is that some of the mysterious that, that comes with... Oh, because mystery is being... Is reduced again to, oh, this is just the firing of neurons, or this is just something that... But again, I wonder if all physicists would agree with you, for example. And I get the impression that Stephen Hawkins or whatever lives in an imaginative world that is extraordinary because of the things that he understands um, and, uh, and so on. I, I, I think, you know, that Keith said, you know, that uh, scientists clip, clip, clip the angel's wing or whatever the exact quote was. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's necessarily true of science. I think science can be can be uh, awe-inspiring in that sense. And I think mm. good science is an extremely imaginative mm. Mm. Um, uh, idea. I'm sure that's also in terms of the expression of genes. I and mean, it's one thing to have a certain genetic material, but not everything that's in there is expressed, either in an entire lifetime or at any moment in it. That opens up a range of opportunities for what makes um, a particular genetic material end up in a particular... Um, outcome, and there I'm sure philosophy, um, you know, has got to be taken into account. There literature as well. Yeah. I think the, the uh, if I could say just one very quick thing about your question. I mean, I think the um, the kind of reductive approach, taking the meaning out of things, because somehow we're just all the function of our genes expressing themselves in different environments. I mean, that you know, that's basically raising the philosophical problem of free will. And, um, and the existence of intelligence. And I think the people who've been worst at this, if I may say so, are probably very simplistic evolutionary psychologists who give you a story, you know, you find such and such a picture beautiful because it reminds you of the savannah where our Pleistocene ancestors <laughs> grazed or whatever they did. Um, and, and I think that kind of stuff, which, you know, this, the popular press still gives space to, is reductionist and is very silly, actually. But nobody in this room is going to take it seriously, so, so that's all right. Um, <laughs> yes? Uh, I was wondering, uh, in terms of foundations of economics, uh, the fact that 
there is a lot of work in foundations of economics coming from philosophy itself, for example, from richer notions of rationality to theories of practical reasoning, imagination from the perspective of evolutionary psychology, and they don't seem to have a clear connection to literature. So does that undermine the... So they don't seem to... They don't seem to have any direct connection. You can work in foundations of economics from philosophy and have no mention to literature at all. So does that pose a problem to what we've been discussing? I mean, I think the topics that I look at in the book, in every single case, with one very slight exception, I'm building on the work of leading-edge economic philosophers and economists. And so every single aspect of kind of re-valuing, replenishing the values of economics or replenishing the conception of human motivation and so on is being talked about somewhere in economics. What I think is not sufficiently appreciated are two things. First of all, the extent to which all these different critiques of the narrower standard neoclassical framework are linked historically and in a very important way by being part of this romantic critique of narrow rationalism. And it's not a critique of rationalism. It's a critique of a narrow version of rationalism that was particularly Benthamite and that unfortunately had a huge impact on the evolution of economics. I think the other thing that's not sufficiently taken into account, even in most cutting-edge economics, is the degree to which creativity and imagination actually cause uncertainty, an uncertainty of a degree which is called nighting uncertainty, if you like. But even Knight, Frank Knight, didn't largely seem to appreciate the extent to which his own nighting uncertainty was caused by innovation and creativity. Now, if, with Schumpeter and others, you take creativity to be a central part of the capitalist economies, then uncertainty is right at the core of the problems that economics needs to deal with. And I think it still isn't right at the core of what most economists are trying to work with. It's a very difficult problem that they try to push away by making it measurable probabilities wherever possible, et cetera, et cetera, adaptive rationality. But none of these things quite get to the central problem, which is that there's this, at the core, this uncertainty we create by the free choices we make, by the new imaginative ideas that we have, and so on. Yes? My question's for Neil again. You were talking about using literary models to help psychiatrists, which I thought was really interesting. But when you start transposing that back to literature, do you think you get problems in the same way that you get 100 Freudian Hamlets suddenly? And there's a problem of having a sort of extension of biographical fallacy when you say this character behaved in this way because we've retrospectively diagnosed them with whatever problem. And how do you deal with that? I think clearly the scope, the danger that you identify is very great. But I think there are also very fine books that manage to, I mean, I don't know if people have read the new Siri Hustvedt, The Shaking Woman, which describes at some length her own extraordinary neurological condition, rooted in her reaction to her father's death. She describes her treatment by neurologists, her years of psychoanalysis. She also 
historicizes her condition by asking what would Brudnell Carter have made of my symptoms, what would Schachko have made of my symptoms, etc. So used precisely this culture that you're talking about to escape the I suppose escape the present <coughs> escape the uh, overknowingness of the present um, but it, I think she's an extraordinary writer and extraordinarily well versed in all of the issues involved concerning the relationship between literature and psychiatry but, but the, and of course Mantel is another um, but there are I mean I, I can think of lots um, there's no reason why the traffic shouldn't go the other way did, did you want to come in on that I just wanted to ask um, a question of, of, of you um, Margaret because you said a very interesting thing which is you thought that literature had stopped being as I understood it the stuff of history as opposed to the extent reflecting it after about 1878 or whatever and I wonder if um, if to some extent it's just that it's less narrowly literature now and it's for example television programs I mean, yeah. one area I've been very interested in is, is the role of, 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 of the civil service and why it is we don't get on the one hand on the other hand briefs we get monocultural advice in the civil service and I've come to the same conclusion it's largely because of the Westminster. <laughs> the Westminster actually so undercut and so I just wonder whether the narratives we're getting they're still terribly important in constructing history but they're not so purely yeah. literature as yeah. you know, with a capital M well, I, what I was trying to say is that I think that the, the novel and history had a different relationship in the 18th and 19th century and I do think it is precisely this efflorescence of ways to be imaginative in the 20th century, starting particularly with film. Um, but the new ways of imagining a self, uh, the centrality, I think, that the novel occupied, even for um, you know, work, working class people, men and women in the 18th and 19th century, I mean, the novel was absolutely formative to this imagining of self. And now we have this much wider repertoire, uh, which is sometimes a good thing and sometimes quite horrifying. Um, but I think it goes back as well to the ways you were describing how to come to own your disease you go online, you know, and that's going to be where you will, will actually have some, this is not, I'm not uh, advocating this, I'm no. saying that this is available out there, no. that you only have seven minutes with your GP, but you could have 70 hours with other sufferers of, of this disease. So it's a very different emotional uh, and imaginative repertoire. It's often said, by the way, that the um, flashback symptom in post-traumatic stress disorder, or what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a very different thing from shell shock, though the two are often conflated, actually is a function of cinema. Mm. That there is no record of it before the 1930s. Mm. And the first literary record of it is Goodbye to All That, which I think is 1929. But after the First World War, nobody is talking about shell shock in terms of um, we've got four minutes left and there's quite a lot of hands um, so what I think I'll do is allow three people to make <coughs> their own question not statement, question and then you can wind up is that alright? ok, first 
it's an observation, really. Uh, Richard, I wonder if you could imagine, <laughs> I wonder if you could imagine a uh, romantic mathematician. And it sounds a bit crazy, but I, I wonder sometimes whether economics is actually mathematics, and they just happen to use some things out there which they call markets and what have you as vehicles for developing more and more elegant mathematical solutions. That's one question. Um, you were next. Thanks. Um, I uh, very much appreciated the call for disciplinary pluralism within economics and, and of course beyond and uh, I took your argument to be a, a call for imagination, for, for, for metaphorical self-awareness and of course also a call for non-dogmatism. I think there was a bit of that in there and uh, I mean of course dogmatism has a bad name but uh, in a world where uh, a discipline may be uh, run by brutes, the, the poets don't always do well against uh, brutes. Uh, there can be uh, obvious danger with, with an ironic sensibility that can uh, cause yourself to, uh, to not overcome the kind of problems that you feel it's necessary to overcome. So I wonder whether taking all the arguments for imagination, for, for, for metaphor, the, the element about um, dogmatism I was less certain of, and I wonder whether there needs to be something of the robustness of an avant-garde uh, as much as the uh, the irony of the uh, of the of the poet in, in to challenge this disciplinary monism. Okay, that's two and the third. Um, the question is, if um, literature um, is now seen as entertainment um, by the general public and 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 generally, and even academics. Um, if, if this is a trend or um, a, a precondition, as um, Richard Bronk was, was saying, um, what, um, what, what use is there or what, how would one get to using literature as a resource, both for academics and um, to a wider public? Okay, thank you very much. Maths, the avant-garde, literature as entertainment. <laughs> I thought that's what you were going to say. Um, on, on, on mathematics, um, I mean, I, I think mathematics is, as I understand it, those of you who, who can understand it, well, which is not me, um, that it, it, the, the beauty of maths is something that, that a lot of mathematicians respond to, and I think in many cases that's what a lot of economists are responding to. They're responding to the beauty of their mathematical models. And forgetting that it's only one language among many for trying to understand the social world. Um, on um, literature as a resource, well, yes, I mean, I, I absolutely, that, that's what I'm, I'm arguing. But I also would very much agree with what Neil said, that it has huge value in itself. And I'm not in any sense suggesting that literature should only have um, a, a derivative um, value. And on the, on the, on the dogmatism point, um, I mean, I, I think this is, this, is, this is absolutely right that um, the, the eclecticism, if you like, has to be, has to be disciplined and it has to be hard-headed. And um, without wanting to go into the details, I mean, in the book I try to argue at which points in the research cycle, particularly the definition of the problem, you need to be much more open-minded and so on. But of course, at some point, you need to plump for one set of models and use those and then perhaps come back and revisit whether that's the right approach at the end. But in other words, 
What I'm trying to argue for is getting the benefits of paradigm focus without all the costs, not junking um, uh, paradigm focus uh, research. Anyone else? Well, we've gone 7.30, so I think... Um, I think oh, are, are we, do we have to be out of here, or can we... I think we can probably carry on. If we want. Oh, yeah. right, I'm sorry, I've been... <laughs> I don't know. But, On no, the other hand, some of us need like a drink, so... <laughs> <laughs> and I think you've all worked extremely hard and very well, and the audience has had a wonderful time, at least I have, and um, I hope they have. So thank you very much.